Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read a verse that many of you no doubt memorized in elementary school. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. We're going to read through verse 18. John three sixteen to 18. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, we're grateful that you've not left us alone to try to figure out who you are, but you've spoken to us. You've spoken through the prophets. You've spoken through the apostles. You've spoken uh, preeminently through your son, Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for him. We pray that this morning, as we study your word, you would allow us to understand who you are and who Jesus is, give us understanding and wisdom that comes not from things that we have read, written by man, comes not from our own opinions, but comes instead from the Word of God and the Spirit of God speaking to us. Lord, we pray, uh, remove distractions. We pray, open our minds and our hearts to understand what your Word has to say. We pray that we would believe it with our hearts, and we pray that you would empower us through your Spirit to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I am perhaps one generation uh, further along in life than you guys are, and so I grew up with a slightly different set of uh, media than perhaps you guys did. When I was growing up, we did not have iPods and things along those lines. Instead, uh, we had CD players. Uh, Many of you perhaps had CD players when you were small, uh, but you actually had to buy a little round disc and place it in the CD player and listen to it, and uh, there were companies that were out there that would sell you CDs, and you could actually join what was called a CD club. Uh, this goes back years. You could actually, before that, join a tape club, and it goes all the way back to a book club, but you would get an advertisement in the mail. Yeah, I know. Uh, books are the original form of media that people would look at, it, believe it or not, and so you would, go, you would get a, uh, uh, an advertisement in the mail, and uh, it would say something like this. It would say, you can get 12 CDs for a penny. Right? And you look at that and you'd go, man, that is just unbelievable, right? Because the normal price was 12 to 15 bucks. So 12 for a penny, that's virtually free. And so you'd get your catalog, you'd sign up, you would order the 12 CDs, they would send them to you. Now, they weren't always the best CDs, the ones that you got for a penny. You know, they were something from the 50s, Chuck Berry or whatever it may be. But they would send you these great uh, CDs and you'd eagerly gather them. And then along with them would come a little note that said, okay, you are now in our club and all you've got to do over the next year is order three to five of these at full price, plus shipping. And uh, every month they would send you a card, and that card would say, uh, we're going to send you such and such a selection. If you don't want it, you have to check this box, and you have to send the card back to us. If you failed to do that, you would get a bill with a CD. Uh, If you failed to pay for the CD, you would get a call from a collection agency, right? And so there were little kids and their parents everywhere getting calls from collection agencies because they didn't pay Uh, for their CDs, and they got sucked into this idea that they could get something for nothing, right? So because of deals like that, you guys still see them all the time. 
get onto the internet and some ad pops up and it says you can get a free trip to Hawaii and the fine print says if you will buy a townhome, right? Or something along those lines. You can get a free sandwich if you will buy six at regular price or whatever it may be. And so we're very skeptical of anything that is free. It's really hard for us to believe that somebody would just give us something for free. And I think that attitude often translates into how we view the gospel itself and how we understand the gift of eternal life. It's really hard for us to believe that it could be free. When I was in college, I actually had a friend of mine uh, who was not a believer. I shared the gospel with him, and uh, he said to me, he said, "I I believe that Jesus could save me. I believe that Jesus could give me eternal life, but I think that I might be able to earn it, and I want to try first. And so his strategy was, maybe I can do just enough good things that God will decide to let me in, that God will decide to give me eternal life. And I think that that idea resonates with us, and it's not just a 21st century American concept. Actually, this is a uh, human concept, that nothing should be free, that somehow we ought to add in what we do to the free gift of eternal life. And so throughout the ages of church history, uh, we've seen multiple attempts beginning all the way back in the days of Jesus and the apostles, going all the way forward into the history of the church of men and women trying to add something to the free gift of eternal life. Maybe something I do, maybe something that I have to say, maybe it is baptism, maybe it is this, maybe it is that. And men and women have a tendency to say, I want to add something in. And so what we're going to look at this morning is, is the gift of eternal life really free? Is it something that God gives away for free on the basis of what Jesus has done, or is there something else we have to add in? And we're going to look at a few views that are prominent, I think, still today in various denominations and churches of how we receive eternal life. And then what we're going to try to do is come down to what does the Scripture ultimately say? All right, and as I do this, I would encourage you, some of you may have come from a particular background, you may have a favorite author, you may have some source from which you've gathered your information. Let me encourage you this morning, set that aside, again, like we did a few weeks ago when we talked about free will and predestination, all those things. I encourage you, set your preconceptions aside. Let's look at the Word of God. If you choose to disagree with me in what I say, disagree with me on the basis of the Word of God, rather than on the basis of your favorite author or even your background, or your tradition. All right, we're going to look at a few views of what, uh, what is eternal life, and how do we get it, and what does the Scripture say? All right, the first one is this. Uh, we receive eternal life, perhaps, through faith plus works. Through faith plus works. Um, this past week, actually, just to share a little story from our household, uh, my five-year-old daughter lost her very first tooth. Came right out of her mouth, actually, uh, but it came out of her mouth with much travail and tears. It had been uh, loose for about two or three weeks, and a friend of ours suggested to her that it was perhaps loose enough that it could come out on a thir- a Wednesday or Thursday night. And so we got home, and she said, Daddy, I want you to try to take the tooth out. All right, now, if you've ever experienced this or had someone pull a tooth from your mouth, you know it can hurt. And I warned her, I said, it's going to hurt just a little bit. And uh, she said, is it going to hurt a lot? I said, it'll hurt. You know, I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it'll be a lot or a little bit, but uh, I went into her mouth and I began to wiggle and I wiggled the tooth and uh, she started crying and she said, it hurts, it hurts. I said, well, I can stop if you want me to. And she said, no, I want the tooth to go under my pillow tonight. So 
I got back in there and I wiggled some more and there were tears and I'd pull back and I'd say, I think we need to wait. She'd say no. And finally, I managed to extract the tooth from her mouth. We put it under her pillow. And uh, of course, the tooth fairy came that evening and she had been reading all about the tooth fairy uh, for the whole previous week. And as we were talking about the tooth fairy, something struck me about the tooth fairy. All right, you've got all of these different legendary figures that surround holidays and events and things like that. Santa Claus, uh, you've got the Easter Bunny, you've got the Tooth Fairy. What I noticed is the Tooth Fairy is different from all of the others, right? Because Santa Claus, you wake up on Christmas morning and he just gives you stuff. There's gifts under the tree. You didn't pay him for him, you didn't do anything. Easter Bunny, you wake up on Easter, there's chocolate, there's something there. Tooth Fairy, you've got to pay the Tooth Fairy. And it's a payment that comes with tears and trial. And literally, the tooth fairy wants a part of your body before <laughs> she will give you any money. You've got to work for the tooth fairy's gift. Right? There have been some throughout the, 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 church, the history of the church that have said, if you want to get the free gift of eternal life, it's not just believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done. God does not give you eternal life for free. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. One example of this would perhaps be uh, Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have a passage in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi that says, By grace we are saved, after all we can do. And when I ask my Mormon friends about this, they say, Well, what that means is you do your very best, you give everything you can, and then wherever you fall short, God will put in the rest. So you add your works to what God does. Historically, The Roman Catholic Church has held to a view where faith is paired with works. It's called cooperationism. And I insert my works into the process and God gives grace to my works. And the two of us work together for salvation. Here's a quote from the Council of Trent, a Catholic council in the 16th century. It says this, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification... And that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. Anathema uh, permeates this document. It's their nice way of saying, go to hell. That really is what it means, all right? Anathema literally means you're cursed. You're eternally cursed. If you say that you are justified by faith alone and works do not cooperate, they say, no, you have to add your works into the equation. And specifically in Catholic doctrine, uh, you receive the grace of God through performing the sacraments. And God transmits his grace. So if you don't perform the sacraments, you pull away, you no longer receive the grace of God that, is, that comes from the cross. All right? So we pair faith and works together. That's cooperationism. And often a passage that is quoted comes, uh, is from the book of James. Many of you are familiar with it, James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, the argument is James himself says the two must be paired together. Now we can talk about James in a minute, but the problem is, and the problem theologians have had with James 2 for hundreds of years, is that if you take that at face value, it seems to contradict other passages of Scripture. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, called James, the book of James, a right strawy epistle. What he meant by that is it was of lesser value uh, than the others in the New Testament canon because he thought it simply contradicted what Paul said. In passages like Romans chapter 3, uh, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, right? So James says one's justified by uh, works and not faith alone, but then you get into Romans, it says you're justified by faith without works. Which is it? 
As you go through the writings of Paul, you see similar passages. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans chapter 11. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, Paul says this Greek word for grace, it literally means freely given, gifted, something that's given to you. And he says, look, if you have to work for it, it's not a gift. Uh, We recently had uh, one of our uh, staff members was given a truck, given a car, which is a great blessing for him. And uh, I've never been given a car in my life. I don't know how he worked it out, but somebody gave him a vehicle. But when they gave it to him, they said, uh, this is your car. There were no conditions attached to the gift. Can you imagine if someone gave you a car and then they said, uh, but, but you can only drive it 10 miles a week, right? You have to change the oil five times a year. You have to keep it red, has to stay red. And they placed all kinds of conditions on it. What would you begin to wonder after time? Is this really a gift? Especially if they said, if you violate any of those provisions, I'm taking the truck. It's mine again. Once we attach conditions to a gift, Paul says it's no longer a gift. It becomes something you have to earn. Romans chapter 4. Paul writes, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So over and over and over again, Paul says in all of his writings, salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone apart from works. All right, so what do we do with a passage like James 2? Unfortunately, I don't have the time this morning to go into a detailed exposition of James 2, but most commentators on James 2 have had to come to the conclusion that James 2, the justification in James 2, and I think this is correct, is not talking about how do I go to heaven when I die? How do I receive eternal life? Instead, when you look at the illustrations, particularly in James 2, it doesn't talk about Abraham believing God, like here in Romans 4. Instead, it talks about Abraham sacrificing Isaac years after he had believed and God had counted him righteous. And the justification that Abraham receives is the practical outworking of the maturing of that faith that began when he believed God. So there's a practical declaration that, yes, Abraham is righteous, that is based ultimately a long time ago on the fact that he was declared righteous by God. But now he's worked it out when he sacrifices Isaac. So James is saying that under normal circumstances, under, the right, uh, under ideal conditions, uh, if we are listening to the voice of the Spirit, we will produce works in the Christian life. But James is not saying that works are necessary for eternal life. Otherwise, he contradicts everything that Paul says. All right, this was the foundation of what we call the Protestant Reformation, 16th century. Martin Luther, John Calvin, men who said ultimately, no, we believe that the medieval Catholic Church is wrong. You cannot pair works with faith in any sense and still be trusting in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. So the scripture says, no, it's not faith plus works. Faith alone. 
Another possible understanding would be uh, faith plus baptism. Faith plus baptism. I want to show you guys a video here for uh, just a quick second. Some of you have perhaps seen the movie uh, Nacho Libre. Uh, Let me uh, just show you guys one popular depiction of the theology we're going to talk about. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Felicidades. <laughs> All right. Well, clearly, uh, he holds to a view of uh, baptism that we would call uh, baptismal regeneration is, is actually the historical view for what he holds to. And that, that's an extreme version. The idea is that baptism itself will keep me from going to hell. If I am baptized, I am saved. All right, now, in uh, more popular and more modern uh, understandings of it, it says, well, yes, you exercise faith in Jesus, but you also must be baptized by water, and your water baptism in some way contributes to your salvation. A passage that is often used to defend this understanding comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now again, uh, we can talk about this passage in a moment, but the problem is that there are many passages throughout the scripture that talk about salvation on the basis of faith alone, and even several passages that seem to argue against the idea that baptism, that water baptism is necessary for salvation. Let me give you just a few. Acts chapter 10 says, while Peter was still saying these things, that is preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, what's interesting about that passage is what? The Holy Spirit comes upon them before or after they are baptized. Before. Now, if you look at Romans 8, it seems clear. It says, if anyone has the Spirit, he is a child of God. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit, he is not. The Holy Spirit cannot enter into and indwell unbelievers. And yet they weren't yet baptized. They're baptized after they believe and after they become Christians, after the Holy Spirit comes into them. All right, another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And ultimately, Paul says this, that I didn't come to baptize people, but I came to preach the gospel. In other words, he did not consider baptism in that context an essential part of preaching the gospel. Now, no doubt these men and women that he's preaching to were baptized later. Baptism was a command given by Jesus and all of the early Christians were baptized, but after They heard the preaching of the gospel and received it. They were baptized. Baptism was always a response to the preaching of the gospel. Let me give you one more. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. All right, the great thing about 1 Corinthians 12 is it talks about we were baptized into what? Into one spirit. Every believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The word baptism uh, ultimately just means immersion, and it came to have the idea of identification with. It had the idea of if you take a cloth and you dip it into dye and you pull it back out, it's changed its color. So if I am baptized into water, I, I get wet, right? And I'm identified with the water. If I am baptized into the Spirit, the Spirit fills me up, and I'm now identified with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the idea of 1 Corinthians 12 is that we're all baptized with the Spirit. And what is water baptism? Water baptism is an outward symbol of an internal reality. And it's a response that's commanded by Jesus Christ so that I publicly identify with him when I've already been internally identified with him through the Spirit. Uh, Baptism, I'm not saying, is an optional command. It is one that Jesus commands. If you have not been baptized, I would encourage you to do so because it is obedience to Jesus Christ. But there are examples in the scripture of uh, men and women who are uh, given salvation by Jesus. Luke 23, 43, for example, the thief on the cross. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was not baptized. And yet Jesus promises him eternal life. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter talks about, he says, baptism saves you, but he says it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not that process of the water. Instead, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. What it is and what it represents is that God cleanses me through the Holy Spirit and renews me. Baptism is an outward symbol of the internal reality. All right, so Acts 2, 38, what is Peter talking about when he says, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? You look at the context of Acts chapter 2, and what's going on is Peter is talking to a Jewish audience, men and women who have uh, just heard the word of God, and it says the Holy Spirit had actually filled them up. And now Peter begins to preach, and the thing he says is this. He says, men and women of Israel, Jesus Christ came to you, and he preached the kingdom, and you rejected him. And as a result of your rejection of him, guess what? Judgment is coming upon this nation. God's going to destroy Jerusalem. And the people say, well, what what can we do? And Peter says, you repent, you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says, all who had received the word were baptized. Their baptism serves as an opportunity for them to publicly identify with Jesus Christ, to pull away from the wicked generation in which they're living, so that what? So that they can avoid the judgment of God on their nation, on their people. The judgment which ultimately did come, because as a whole, the nation rejected their Messiah. And so in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was torn down. But Peter says, who knows? Our God is a gracious God. Turn from your rejection of Jesus. You publicly identify with him. You listen to the gospel. And who knows? God might be gracious. Biblically, we have really uh, no indication, especially as you read through the book of John, that the, the requirement for salvation is always faith. John, which is written, how do I know? How can I know that I'm saved? You never see baptism as a requirement of salvation. A third possible understanding would be a faith plus repentance. And I put repentance there in quotations. And the reason is because I think often the term is misunderstood. And we're going to talk about that. Faith plus repentance. So we had faith plus works, faith plus baptism. Maybe it's faith plus repentance. Maybe I have to, by repentance and the common understanding it is, I commit to turn from my sin, to stop sinning, to do better in the future, and then I turn to Jesus and Jesus accepts my commitment, my repentance. 
It's slightly different understanding from saying, I trust in Jesus and what Jesus has done on my behalf. Instead, it is, uh, yes, I trust in Jesus, but I also say, Jesus, I'll do better in the future. Just to give you an interesting illustration that I thought of earlier this week. When I was, any of you guys go skiing over spring break at all? A few of you guys? Okay. Uh, when I was in uh, high school, I went with a, my youth group to go skiing. And uh, the last day, this is always the day that you're most likely to get hurt because you try to do the things that you were afraid to do or go on the slopes that you would not go on. And uh, we had some friends on the very last day that decided to go uh, off of of the slope on their skis and they found a little jump away back in the trees that they were having fun with. So they would go on this little trail and they would come out and they would do this jump and they were doing it over and over again. And of course, some of them got hurt. One guy fell down and he slid into a rock and he cracked a few ribs. Another person hurt his leg pretty seriously. And so uh, they're lying there on the slope. Snowmobile comes and takes them away to the hospital, patches them up. Then after they patched them up, they brought them back to the ski lodge and they actually made them sit in a room and watch a ski safety video. An instructional video about how they ought not to go do those sort of things anymore, how they need to stay on the trails. And it occurred to me, I thought, what would have happened, though, if while they were in pain, broken ribs, a broken foot, they said, before we can fix you, you need to go down to the ski lodge. We're going to show you a video. All right. After you watch the video, we want you to sign a paper. The paper will say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Now, what would happen? Would they pay attention to the video? Probably not. Would they sign the paper? You betcha. All right? Would they have any understanding of what they were doing or saying? No, probably not. But you could extract their name onto a piece of paper. Popular view of repentance says this, that as an unbeliever, up front, when I'm broken in sin and I'm desperate for healing, right before that moment of, of trusting in Christ, God says to me, wait, sign something. It says you're not going to do this anymore. You're going to do better. Get down on your knees and promise me you're going to do better. Now, what I'm going to argue is I don't think biblically that is the biblical understanding of repentance. But just to give you one idea in the popular conception of how the, the, the idea is used, I'm going to give you a quote from uh, one writer. Uh, John Piper says this, Saving faith is no simple thing. It has many dimensions. Believe on the Lord Jesus is a massive command. It contains a hundred other things. We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of life everlasting. And now I've placed this uh, discussion about repentance separately from the discussion about works because Piper is not arguing that works are necessary for salvation. And in fact, he says that in the next paragraph. Instead, he, he is arguing that faith includes this massive transformation of mind and attitude and yes, behavior. So he links the works and the attitude change with faith. And so faith is not simply belief in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is belief in Jesus Christ and submission and agreement to do better and humbling yourself and loving God more than you love your family, your possessions, and it includes all of these things together. All right, that's the popular conception. All right, and I share this not to say that I think John Piper is bad. I think he's written some wonderful things. And I think he seeks to preach the gospel, but on this This particular point, I would respectfully disagree because as I look at the scripture, we're going to talk about this concept of repentance for just a minute. I do not see repentance as meaning I have to stop sinning and turn from my sin before Jesus will accept me. 
I want to look for just a moment at the word repentance in the scripture. All right, how is it used in the scripture? There's a few ways. Uh, First of all, you see it in Matthew 4. When Jesus first comes preaching, Jesus preaches this. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first message that Jesus preaches. It's a huge, important, significant message. But here's what's significant. When Jesus is preaching this, is he preaching the gospel that you or I would preach to an unbeliever today? Well, he can't be, right? Because Jesus hasn't yet died. He hasn't yet risen from the dead. He hasn't yet completed the work that he came to complete. He's not saying believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for eternal life. Instead, Jesus is saying, I'm the king. And those of you who are subjects of the law, those of you who are in the nation of Israel, turn from your misunderstanding of who God is, your misunderstanding of how to obey, and turn to me and I'll show you the right way. Repentance in its broad sense simply means to turn from one mindset or behavior to avoid the judgment of God. And Jesus, I think, very literally, again, is saying, you turn from your wicked ways because the judgment of God is coming on you people and turn to me. And he's offering there and then if they will turn to establish his kingdom right there. He says to them, turn to the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's also used toward unbelievers. Acts 17 is a great example. Paul preaching in Athens. Paul says to these unbelievers, these pagans in Athens, he says, "Uh, let us not suppose that the divine image is is like gold or silver or something made in the image of human hands. Instead, uh, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. And now what's he doing? He's calling all men everywhere to repent. Why? So that they can avoid the judgment of God so that when a God comes back, judgment won't come upon them. But specifically in the context, what are they being called to turn from? They're understanding that the image of God is like silver or gold or wood. Paul says specifically, turn away from worshiping idols and turn toward worshiping Jesus. He is not saying, uh, stop doing bad things. Stop drinking, smoking, and going with girls who do, right? What he's saying is turn from your understanding that God is an idol, a block of wood, and turn toward the living God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's his understanding of repentance. Also used in Romans to warn of the wrath of God that comes upon sin and to urge change. Talking to, after uh, Paul draws out in Romans chapter 1 that all of mankind has incurred the wrath of God, in Romans 2 he says, by the way, those of you who think you're really good, know this. You do the same things, and the wrath of God comes upon those things, and God is waiting for you to repent. And then he goes on in chapter 3, and he says, by the way, nobody has repented. Nobody has done it. And so as a result, what's happened? God sent Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus rose again. And faith in him provides salvation for free. See, the problem in Romans is not that we can repent and stop doing these wrong things and receive eternal life. The problem in Romans is we haven't. And so we've incurred the judgment of God. And the only solution is not to try again to repent or try again to do better. The only solution is to trust in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, this is the only time in the book of Romans that this term repentance is used, and it's used in this context of setting up condemnation for everyone, not in a context of how can I receive eternal life. One more illustration, to urge believers to avoid discipline through repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. And he goes on to say, when I come, I'm going to discipline all of you. 
And the idea is you turn away from this immorality to avoid the judgment, the discipline that's coming upon God's people. So biblically, repentance is for unbelievers, it is for believers, but it is not used as a requirement in addition to faith uh, for eternal life. It is not used as something to say, I've got to do better, I've got to promise, I've got to sign the dotted line before Jesus will accept me. And I think the problem is uh, that biblically, when we begin to use it that way, we dilute the fact uh, that Jesus' death and resurrection is so sufficient for payment of our sin that there's nothing we can do, nothing we can say to add to it. What's interesting is this word is never used in Galatians or John. John is the, the biggest book that you would say it is, t- it is written to tell us how can we know Jesus Christ and have eternal life. The word is never used. Never used in Galatians. A book that distinguishes how do I know Jesus Christ by faith versus the way of works. All right, again, mention this. It's already used once in the book of Romans, and it is not used to refer to a commitment to stop sinning in order to receive eternal life. Not once. And the reason is this, because the, the whole tenor of the scripture is that uh, eternal life is received by trusting alone in Jesus Christ and what he has done. All right? Ultimately, I'm going to say uh, the final view we're going to talk about is this, faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. A couple of verses. We looked at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, which we read at the beginning, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This word belief in the Greek is the same word as faith, same word as trust. And the idea is I trust in what Jesus has done and that it is sufficient for me to receive eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, uh, the gospel that I preach is that Jesus died for sins and he rose again. And to those who believe, they have eternal life. And the issue is that it is Jesus' work that is sufficient for eternal life. Nothing that I do. Two objections to this. One is, well, that's cheap grace. It's cheap grace. My response to that would be this. It's actually unbelievably costly. It costs more than you or I could ever imagine. More than you or I could ever give. Because the very Son of God gave his precious blood to secure our salvation. Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus Christ is worthy, alone is worthy, because by his blood he paid for our sin, all of it. Past, present, future. Another objection is, well, it can be so easily abused. You you give something for free. I mean, it it can be abused. What's to keep people from just living however they want? And the scripture talks about that a lot. And there's real discipline. There's real judgment. There's real punishment for believers who live apart from the plan of God. Judgment in this life, perhaps loss of reward and shame at the judgment seat of Christ in the next life. But there's nothing to indicate that we can either lose our salvation or that we earn it somehow through doing things. I typically think of faith like this. Uh, many of you perhaps flew somewhere over spring break, got on an airplane, flew somewhere. When you got on that airplane, once you stepped on that plane, you made a decision that I'm going to trust that this airplane and this pilot are going to get me where I am wanting to go. 
You sat down in your seat. Now, it may be that after the plane took off, you started to wonder a little bit. Maybe there was some turbulence. But it's not as if the plane is fueled by your uh, faith or lack thereof. If everybody in the plane begins to doubt, it's not like the plane takes a nosedive. And the pilot's going, believe, believe, right? (laughs) Pull up, right? Once you get on the plane, what gets you there? The pilot flying the plane. Doesn't matter how you feel. Right? Doesn't even matter if you leave your, uh, your tray down or your seat back back. Right? Now, you might get punished for that. You might get disciplined. But they don't kick out a window and throw you out at 30,000 feet, right? Once you've made that decision to get on the plane, what gets you there is the airplane and the pilot. Not you. Not anything you say. Not anything you do. Not anything from that point on. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you guys as we close to ask yourself this question. First of all, am I trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection alone for eternal life? Or am I trusting in something else? Where am I getting my conception of what is the gospel? Does it come from a popular book I read? Or am I looking at the scripture to see the value and the worth of Jesus Christ? And then when I present the gospel, how do I present it? Is it trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done? Or is it hey, here's a contract. Sign the contract. Make sure you do something. Make sure you give your two cents and God will put in his 98. No. You don't have two cents. You're in a massive debt. Jesus Christ died and rose again to provide eternal life. Jamie's going to come and sing a song as we close um, called Hallelujah, What a Savior. And as we sing it, We're just going to reflect on the beauty and the glory of our Savior, what he has done for us, despite our sin, despite our inability to receive eternal life on our own. So let's sing, and then we'll close after he's done. Our Father, we are so grateful to you as we remember and as we reflect upon uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a Savior. God, it costs us nothing, but it costs him everything. Father, we thank you that you gave him to give his life, to endure separation from you, pain and agony and rejection and ultimately death because of our sin so that we can have eternal life. God, let us preach and proclaim the message of the gospel clearly and freely to men and women who need to know that there is nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing we can promise that would be sufficient to bridge the gap between our sin and your holiness. Let us rely completely upon you. God, we love you. And we pray be with us this week in the tasks that we have to attend to and the relationships to which we are obligated, Father. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all in two weeks.